Good morning, church. I know I've been sitting up there for the last 20 minutes or so, but I still need just a second to soak it all in and just savor this moment. It's been three years, it's been over three years since I've had the chance to tell you all at once in the same room at the same time that I love you. I'm going to tell my brothers and sisters up here, I love you. Richard asked me earlier why I don't just sign the whole sermon, but that's about as good as I can do. <laughs> you know, the reason I love doing one church, coming together, it's not just because I only have to preach once on these Sundays. <laughs> the reason, the reason I, I really love this is because there's something powerful, something important, Something transformative about being together with brothers and sisters, being together with people who are united in who we are and what we're doing. It's a reminder that we're part of something bigger than ourselves. And after everything we've been through over the last few years, we need that reminder, don't we? That we're part of something bigger than ourselves. We live in a hyper-individualistic culture that tells us always that it's all about me, it's all about you. And so it's good for us to come together weekly and share the bread, share the cup, sing the songs, be together. And it's especially good for us to come and all be together. And, and for those of you that are visiting this morning, welcome. Thank you for being here. And we hope that you are just as encouraged as we are uh, by our time together this morning. Speaking of, of big families, I got a chance a few weeks ago to hang out with uh, some old friends that uh, have a unique family situation. They have eight kids and one on the way. Okay? Eight kids and one on the way. And, and why I wanted to share that with you is that they are, they are known to tell young couples who only have one or two kids, keep going. Have, have more kids. And, and they, they even tell them, you know, after two, you barely even notice any difference. Now, after two, they just kind of all start raising themselves. Now, I, I, cannot, I cannot confirm or deny that claim. I'm, I'm not even going to figure out whether or not that's true. I have no desire to figure out whether that's true. I don't know what it's like to have eight or nine kids, but I do know how much your life change with, changes with one kid, or even with two kids. Everything changes, doesn't it? In fact, I, I don't think that this, this phrase is too out of place when you talk about how much your life changes when you become a parent. Your, your world gets turned upside down, doesn't it? Your life gets turned upside down. Everything in my life changed when I became a parent. Everything from how, and when and why I got up in the morning to how and when and why I went to bed at night and everything in between. And, and one of the things that changed a lot which is, is a lot of simple things, a lot of little things. And if you're a parent, you, you know this, that it was things like getting in and out of a car. I, I never imagined that, that getting in and out of a car would change so drastically. Even that would be turned upside down when we had kids. When we had a toddler and an infant, getting in and out of the car, it seemed like it took hours. I mean, you had, you had car seats, you had seat belts, you had diaper bags, 
the shoes and socks. I don't know why, but every time the shoes and socks came off when we were in the cars and we had to put those back on, I'll never forget that when we would go out to lunch with a couple that they didn't have kids yet, you know, and they didn't have kids at all, or their kids were a little bit older, and they, they weren't at the same stage of life. And we get to the parking lot, and we were struggling to put shoes and socks back on and get unbuckled and get all the bags. And I'd look over at my friends, and they just parked their car, turned off the engine, got out. It was like a magic trick or something. I didn't know how to do it. But this is reality, isn't it? And there's lots of things. It's not just parenting. There's lots of things in our life that turns our world upside down. And now my boys are middle schoolers. Talk about turning your life upside down, right? But here's the thing. Once you've experienced it, you wouldn't want it any other way. It turns your world upside down, but once you've experienced it, you really wouldn't want it any other way. Now, you take that idea and multiply it by I don't know how many, and, and, that's, and that's the way that it is when you decide that you are going to follow Jesus. Yeah. Following Jesus, I mean really following Jesus, turns your life upside down. Yeah. Following Jesus turns your life upside down, but once you've experienced it, you wouldn't want it any other way, right? But, but here's the thing. Here's, here's what I feel like I need to warn us about. What I feel like I, I need admonishment on, and maybe you need admonishment on, is that sometimes we want to follow Jesus without having our life turned upside down. And that's not an option. I mean, it's like somebody that wants to become a parent. It's like, I want kids, I'd like to become a parent, I'd like to have a big family, but I don't want my world turned upside down. It doesn't work like that. You can't have that. You can't be a parent without your life being turned upside down by parenting. And you cannot follow Jesus. Even more so, you cannot follow Jesus without your life being turned upside down. Everything will change. Everything needs to change. The, the how needs to change. The why needs to change. The what needs to change. Everything in your life will be turned upside down. It will be changed dramatically once you decide, I'm going to really, truly follow Jesus. But once you've experienced that, you wouldn't want it any other way. We've been studying through as a congregation for the last few months now, the, the book of Acts, and we've been talking about how the gospel, starting in Jerusalem, it went out to the whole world, and person by person, Family by family, the good news about Jesus, the message of Jesus, what we call the gospel, this story of Jesus, this true story of Jesus, who he is, what he's done, what he is doing, and what he will do, life by life, family by family, community by community, it was turning the world upside down. And if we'll let it, it continues to do just that. If we will let him, if we will let Jesus, he continues to turn the world upside down. So if you have your Bible, we're going to be in Acts chapter 17 and verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures. 
See, if you're not familiar with the story of Jesus, you may not recognize or realize that, that Jesus is Jewish. That the first followers of Jesus were Jewish. That Paul, the apostle, was Jewish. And so when he would go to a new community, in this case, Thessalonica, he had the same custom. He would go into the Jewish synagogue and he would tell them about Jesus. And these leaders in this Jewish synagogue, they, they welcomed Paul in. He was one of them. They, they were his people. And so Paul would go into the Jewish synagogue in every new community, and he would tell them about Jesus. And, and they welcomed him back week after week after week, three Sabbaths, that means three weeks. For three weeks, Paul kept coming back and telling them and teaching them about Jesus. And they welcomed him. Why? Because he was teaching them and telling them according to their scriptures. What we call the Old Testament, they just call the scriptures. And so what Paul was saying about Jesus came directly from these scriptures. And they recognized that and realized that what Paul was saying was in accordance with the scriptures. And it says in verse 3 that he was explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Now, some of you may already realize this and recognize this, but for those who don't, Christ, we just kind of throw that word around a lot, Christ, and we say Jesus and Christ together, so that maybe we think that's his last name, but it's not. Christ is his title. He is the Christ. And that's what Paul was teaching when he would go to these Jewish synagogues. He was going in and proving to them with the scriptures, with their scriptures, that Jesus is the Christ. Now, what does that word mean, the Christ? It means the, the Hebrew word, the Jewish word was Messiah. He's the Messiah. But literally that means the anointed one. And to be anointed was to, to have oil put on your head. And in ancient Israel, there were three kinds of people who had oil put on their head who were anointed. Prophets. And prophets were those who had a message from God. So they would speak as the oracles of God. They would speak as one who was sent by God to give a message to the people from God. So prophets were anointed, priests were anointed, and priests were those who would intercede, who would mediate between God and people. And then kings would be anointed. And the king was the one who God would anoint to establish and maintain his rule and reign. The king was anointed, appointed by God to establish and maintain the rule and the reign of God. And what Paul is saying in declaring that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, is he is saying that Jesus is the ultimate of all three of those. He's the ultimate prophet. He, he doesn't just bring a message from God. He is the message from God. He is the Word of God embodied. He is God's revelation of himself. Jesus is the ultimate prophet. And Jesus is the ultimate priest, the ultimate high priest who would intercede and mediate between God and the people. Who, whose reign of priesthood, whose high priesthood would never come to an end. And he was the ultimate king. The one who would ultimately establish and maintain the rule and the reign of God. See, this is what we mean when we say Jesus Christ. When we say Jesus is the Messiah. 
We, we don't just mean that Jesus came to start a new religion. But unfortunately, that's sometimes how we think about it, isn't it? Sometimes that's one of the biggest mistakes that we can make is to think that Jesus came merely to establish a new religion rather than to conquer the world and bring it under God's reign. That's, that's the gospel. That's the good news. Not that Jesus just came to give us a new way to pray and praise. Not just that Jesus came to give us a new place to go when we die. Jesus came to establish God's rule and reign, to conquer the world and bring it under God's reign. Now, when we say conquer the world and bring it under God's reign, we don't mean like any other king. Other kings conquered through militaries. Other kings conquered through politics. But this king, this king, Jesus, the Christ, God's anointed king, is going to conquer through self-giving love. And his people are going to conquer in his name through self-giving love, through being transformed and becoming the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. Jesus conquering the world and bringing it under God's reign by transforming people, by saving people, by giving them the Holy Spirit to live and dwell in them. See, the, the gospel, the good news about Jesus, Christianity, is not just about a new religion. It's not just about a, a new thing to do on the weekends. It's not just about how we pray and how we praise. It's not just about where we're going when we die. It's about the fact that we believe that there is a new and ultimate prophet, priest, and king in charge of the world. That all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. That he rules and reigns and conquers and unites the world in his name. That he is sending out and giving the Spirit of God, to bring the, the world under God's reign. Let's keep reading in verse 4. And some of them, the people to whom Paul is speaking, were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, that's where they were staying, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. Now, we've talked about this before. If you've been with us and we've been going through the book of Acts, we've talked about this word jealousy before. But I want you to think about jealousy. Think about jealousy. What is jealousy? you felt it before, haven't you? I felt it before. What's jealousy? It's an intense feeling, isn't it? Jealousy is an intense feeling, and specifically, it's an intense fear. Jealousy is an intense fear. It's a fear that someone else is going to get what belongs to Jealousy is an intense fear that someone else is going to get what belongs to you. Jealousy is a fear that things are going to change in a way you don't want them to change. Jealousy is a fear that someone is disrupting your life. And they were terrified. Because now the synagogue is never going to be the same again. Either everybody's going to start believing in this Jesus guy, or the synagogue's going to be divided, and some of them are going to believe in Jesus, and others aren't, but their life was going to be disrupted whether they liked it or not. Jesus was interrupting their life. 
Jesus was disturbing their life. Jesus was disrupting their life. And when you see that happening, and you've seen things like that happen, haven't you? Where your life has been threatened to be disrupted? Where somebody is is taking something, or you're afraid somebody's going to take something that belongs to you? Or you're afraid somebody's going to change your life in some way you don't really want your life changed? And this fear, this intense fear that someone is going to take what belongs to you or change your life in a way you don't want it to change, this fear can cause you to do all kinds of things. In fact, these religious people went out and they made friends with the wicked men of the rabble. The rabble is just people that are just hanging around doing all kinds of stuff they shouldn't be doing. And they went out and said, hey, I bet we can get these guys to form a mob. And they went out and partnered with them. See, that's what fear does, doesn't it? Fear causes you to partner with the wrong sorts of people and to do the wrong sorts of things. Fear causes us to partner with wicked people and do wicked things. Why? Because we're afraid. We're afraid. What's our life going to look like after this? What's this going to do to our life? What's this going to take away from us? What's this going to steal from us? How's this going to disrupt us? How's this going to disturb us? How this is going to interrupt us? And we're afraid of that, and it causes us to make all sorts of bad partnerships and do all sorts of bad things. And that's exactly what motivated them to do that, because fear blinds us to the truth. Look at verse 6. And when they could not find them, they couldn't find Paul and Silas, They dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men, here's our phrase, who have turned the world upside down, have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Now notice, notice, even though they're opposed to what the apostles are doing, they're opposed to what these missionaries are doing, they're opposed to what the church is doing, they get it. They heard it. They they know what they're saying. They know what they're doing. They know that this is disrupting the world. It's changing the world. It's turning the world upside down. The world is never going to be the same again. And what is it that these Christian people are doing to disrupt the world? What is it that they're doing to turn the world upside down? It's not gathering up arms and trying to take things over. It's not revolt. It's not sedition. It's simply by sharing this message. There is another king, and his name is Jesus. And if that's true, if that's, if that's really true, I know, I know, I know we're here, we're in church. I, I know, we get it, right? I, I know, we, we say it all the time. Jesus is king, Jesus is on the throne, Jesus has been raised from the dead. We say that all the time, but do we really believe that? Because if that's true, and I think it is, if that's true, it changes everything. Everything. We can't, we can't keep living like people lived before. We can't keep chasing what people chased before. We can't keep doing what people were doing before. If this is true, if Jesus is king, then Caesar's really not the most powerful then Caesar's not the king of kings and the lord of lords. Jesus is. 
Then, then my, my fears have to change. My hopes have to change. My desires have to change. My pursuits have to change. Verse 8. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. You know, as I read this, I thought, it seems like sometimes that the first century opponents understood the claims of the gospel better than 21st century Christians. Let me say that one more time. It seems like sometimes first century opponents of the gospel understood the claims of the gospel better than some 21st century Christians. Because 21st century Christians, it's easy for us to say, yeah, 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 I'll take a little Jesus. Yes, yes, I would like Jesus to save my soul. I, I want to go to heaven. And, and it's easy for us to say, I'll take a little bit of Jesus as sort of like a, a life insurance policy. But the, the first century opponents, even though they didn't believe the gospel, they understood the claims of the gospel. That the claims of the gospel are, is that Jesus is king. And they said, if this is true, it changes everything. The first century believers and the first century opponents both understood that if this is true, it changes everything. But so many of us, we want a gospel that doesn't turn our life upside down. We want a gospel that doesn't interrupt us. We want a, a gospel that doesn't disturb us. We want a gospel that lets us go on living like we were living before, only with a little bit more hope. But Jesus wants to turn our very life upside down. And once you've experienced that, you wouldn't want it any other way. Because a gospel that doesn't turn your world upside down is no gospel at all. It's, not, it's only a gospel. It's only the good news. If this is of cosmic importance, it's only the gospel, it's a, if it's of universal importance, it's only the gospel, it's only the good news if it changes everything. We've got to stop settling for a reduced, watered-down version of the gospel that doesn't disrupt our life. We've got to stop. We've got to stop thinking that we can follow Jesus up to the point that our life is disrupted. That's my big encouragement today, is to follow beyond the point of disruption. Can we do that? Can we decide this week, I'm going to follow beyond the point of disruption. And what do we mean by that? Let me give you three ways or three areas of your life that the gospel turns upside down. Because maybe we're still thinking, well, what, what does that even mean? Like, what parts of my life need to be turned upside down? Number one, your perspective. The gospel should change your perspective so dramatically that it doesn't even resemble your pre-Christian perspective. Your perspective on everything has to shift. Your perspective on life, your life, and the life of everybody around you. Your perspective on relationships. Your perspective on morality. Your perspective on suffering. Your perspective on blessings. What do blessings mean? What does it mean to be blessed? It's different than you think, isn't it? Jesus never once says, you're so blessed if you have lots of money. 
Jesus never once said, you're so blessed if you have a big house. Jesus never once said, you're so blessed if you have a nice car, or in that case, chariot. You know, Jesus never said that that was what the blessed life looks like. You want to know what the blessed life looks like? Look at Matthew chapter 5. Look at the Beatitudes. Poor in spirit. The meek. Those who are hungry and thirsty for justice, for righteousness. Those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Jesus says, you're the blessed ones. It's not the rich who are the blessed ones. It's not the wealthy who are the blessed ones. In fact, they have the most challenging situation. They're in the most perilous situation. <laughs> but if you're hungry and thirsty for righteousness, if you're poor in spirit, if you're persecuted for righteousness sake, you have the blessed life. This is what it looks like for your perspective to be turned upside down. But not just your perspective, also your priorities. What's most important to you? What's least important to you? What are you chasing? What are you pursuing? What does success look like? What does failure look like? And it's really easy to pay lip service, to say, oh yes, yes, I have the perspective of a follower of Jesus. I have the priorities of a follower of Jesus. But only you know What's really in your heart? Have you allowed Jesus, have you followed Jesus past the point of disruption so that he can really, truly turn your priorities upside down? And finally, number three, maybe the most difficult is your people. Who are your people? What defines your people? Does ethnicity define your people? Does nationality define your people? Does language define your people? Does culture define your people? Does socioeconomics define your people? Or does the presence of the Spirit of God define your people? It changes everything. When we truly allow Jesus to turn our world so upside down that we say Americans aren't my people. White people aren't my people. English speakers aren't my people. Christians are my people. And Christians come from here, and they look like me, and they come from other places, and they don't look like me, and they don't speak my language, and they don't have the same customs, and they don't have the same background, and if the Spirit of God dwells in them, they are my people. They're my brothers. They're my sisters. They're my family. And it changes everything. When we say the borders of who's my people and who's not my people, the borders of who's my family and who's not my family, it changes when we start to follow Jesus because then, then, everybody is potentially your people because everybody has the invitation to follow Jesus and to receive the Spirit. So even people who don't look like you or talk like you or come from the same country you come from, those people are potentially your people, or they are your people. Either they, they've already begun to follow Jesus, and they're your brothers and sisters, or potentially they could follow Jesus, and then in that case, they're potentially your people. And even if they hate you, and even if they despise you, we love them. Because at the very least, they're our cousins, 
At the very least, we have the same creator. At the very least, we're all descended from Adam and Eve. And following Jesus changes everything. It changes our perspective. It changes our priorities. It changes our people. But too many of us want a Jesus who doesn't interrupt things. A Jesus who doesn't disturb things. A Jesus who doesn't disrupt things. And that's not the Jesus who lives. That's not the Jesus who reigns. That's not the Jesus of the gospel. Because a gospel that doesn't turn your life upside down is no gospel at all. And it's very possible that some of us have been churchgoers for our whole lives, but have never followed Jesus beyond the point of disruption. It's possible we've been praying our whole lives. It's possible we've been baptized. It's possible we've been singing. It's possible we've been worshiping. It's possible that our religion has been changed, but our life hasn't. And I want to invite you this morning. I want to invite you to follow Jesus beyond the point of disruption. I want to invite you to take up your cross and follow him. Let him turn your life upside down. Maybe there's somebody here this morning and you're ready to be baptized. I'll tell you what, we're going to drive back up to McDermott Road and we're going to baptize you. Maybe there's just some of you that need prayers or encouragement. Everybody in this room loves you. Everybody in this room is for you. We may come from different ethnicities. We may come from different backgrounds. We may come from different places. We may speak different languages. But we are a family in Jesus. And if you're going through something, then let us go through it with you. Let us walk through this disruption with you. If we can help you in any way, shape, or form, now's a great opportunity to come forward. Let's get it to stand. Let's see you soon.